goodness to us. We're grateful that you have provided, that you have spoken to us. And we ask this morning that we continue to do that. Open our eyes to your word. Remove the things that would prevent us from hearing and responding to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to look at two verses this morning, primarily 19 and 20. Verses 19 and 20, they are to some degree familiar. If you've been around church, if you haven't, you might hear them somewhat familiar to, to the Christian life. And so I'm going to read, give us a little bit of context for this passage. I'm going to read from verse 11 through the end of the chapter to help us kind of get a picture of these two verses and how they fit in this letter. Verse 11, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews, not, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to justify, to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, um, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me, gave himself for me. Do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. As we approach this passage, and you might say, how do you choose these passages? Well, I don't know, it seemed like a good one. Uh, I also had the opportunity over the last couple months in a seminary class that I'm in to write about a 15-page paper on this. And after I finished the paper, it was interesting. I spent all kinds of times reading and studying and trying to dig in. It was interesting. If you would have asked me, do you understand what this means at the end of that paper, I, I would have said yes and no. I kind of get it, but I kind of don't, even at the end of that time. And so I thought this is an opportunity to, to look at this again and to preach and say, what does this mean for us? What do we really do with this passage, these two verses, as Paul describes dying to the law and living to God and having been crucified with Christ? What does that mean for us? And one of the things that is, is important for us as we read certainly any of the New Testament or the Scriptures is understand, especially with Paul, is understand that there's a perspective that he had upon the crucifixion of Christ. That as he saw the world in which we live, that there was a huge shift or change, if you will, in reality when Christ was crucified. That the way that a person now relates to God as a result of Christ in that period of time, that event that took place in history, salvation history, was huge, that there was a huge shift. And in one respect, everything is different now. And we need to get in our minds this shift that there's a change, that what Christ did at his death, his crucifixion, is usher in a new era, a new age, a new kind of reign, a new kind of 
reality for the Christian, for those who find themselves before God. And we need to have that picture in place. And so when Paul says there's something real that's changed here, we need to understand that. That's a perspective that's helpful for us. And with this shift comes a new era. It's not a way that opposed to the, was opposed to the old one. It was rather a fulfillment of the old one. It was something that completed, that Christ came and completed what God was already doing. That the law and the nation of Israel was a part of his plan. It wasn't the whole of it. That Christ's death and resurrection was a necessary fulfillment and completion to what God was doing in order to save and to redeem mankind. And so that's what Jesus does, and that's how Paul sees it. There's a change, if you will, at two levels. There's a change at the reality level, at the 30,000-foot level of what God was doing in creation, what he's doing in redemption. At the same time, there's a change in the way that we relate to him on an individual level. So there's the big picture, there's the corporate aspect of what God is doing, as well as the personal aspect of what God is doing. And Paul writes about both of these, and we understand this, both of these things were in place, the big picture and the small one. And we can understand that, right? If you were involved or worked for a business and that company was taken over by another one, there was a new leadership or new ownership that came in, the way that you would live within the context of that new management would be different. A new regime would come in and something would be different in the way that you would operate and live within that. The same with marriage would be the same, right? That the transition from being non-married to married is a real transition. It's a real change in reality in the way that you live. And so now the way you live that out would be different as a result of before. The, really, the way you relate to that person, your spouse, and the way you relate to everyone else will be completely different as a result of that. And so is true with the crucifixion of Christ, everything has changed. And the way that we now relate to God through Christ is different. We need to see that. And Paul gives us the, really the, the pictures for us to understand this transition. And the language he uses is a language of the law and the works of the law and faith in Christ. And in verses 15 and 16, he tells us it's not by the works of the law that we're made righteous. It's not by the works of the law or looking to what it calls us to do to have our standing before God, but it's rather faith in Christ. And so there's an era, a change that's come, but now we live not in the works of the law, but in faith in Christ. That the works of the law and the law was a shadow and Christ is the reality of the fulfillment that what God brought in the law was real and it was true, but it was provisional, it was temporary. What Christ brings is permanent. What the law could do as it relates to sin is only reveal sinfulness. What Christ does is reveal sinfulness and brings life and forgiveness. And then we understand that this 30,000-foot level, that there's a real shift at the same time the way we live in it and the way Paul he wants his readers to hear this because his challenge of them is not to go back to the old way. It's to understand the new way, the new age that we live in of Christ is now rule with his death and resurrection in place and to personally apply that to our lives and to ask the questions, what's the change that's taken place and then how does that relate to me because the two are inseparably connected. The changes that God is doing on the, on the cosmic scope, if you will, as well as what he's doing in our relationship with him on an individual level. And to read this passage, we need to understand both. What Paul is saying, there's a real change that's taken place. And for each one of us, we need to ask the question, what's it look like to live in this new reality that's been brought by Christ? And what we're going to do this morning, I'm going to ask those really those two questions. The first one is, what is the truth of this new world that Christ has brought? What is true now about our position in Christ? What has changed? And then how do we navigate that new world that he's brought?
Okay, so what's new and what's real about that? How do we live in that? And then how do we operate within that world? What's the shift in our own experience? What's shifted in the way that we now relate to him? Those are the two areas we're going to look at. First of all, a little bit of context in the, in the book. This letter that, that Paul writes, he writes to the churches in Galatia. And basically what's taken place is they have, they have moved away from the gospel that he had preached to them. And he's challenged to them as to don't go back. They had, they had returned to embracing and utilizing different aspects of the law, not just as a practice, but as a practice that, would then, that was necessary for the person who was following Christ. So they had really moved back, returned back to the law as a necessary means to establish our standing before God. They had returned to a form of legalism that met, that required the law in certain kinds of ways. And so Paul writes to them to challenge them. He establishes his own authority to them. He uses his own example. And in verses 11 through 14, we see this example that he gives as he confronts Peter is important for us. He shows his authority as he confronts Peter, but at the same time, he reveals the danger of returning back to the law. He says in this situation that Peter found himself in where he was really being hypocritical. He was moving away from the gospel that had been preached. And he was separating himself from Gentiles and table fellowship. And so you see that Paul was not living out, or Peter was not living out, the gospel in a pure kind of way. He was returning to the use of the law and the application of the law as it related to the community there. And that was a huge deal. And so Paul speaks and he confronts Peter to say, how can you do this? How can you live in a kind of hypocritical way? How can you embrace the gospel and yet add something else to it? You are completely undermining the gospel. And that's his message to the Galatians. It's dangerous territory to be in, to add anything else to the work of Christ. And so that's what he argues to them. In verses 15 and 16, he gives, following the, his discussion with Peter, it really is a, a continuation of this. It's like his argument to Peter through the Galatians to us of the justification, doctrine of justification uh, by faith. And he says, it's not by the works of the law that anyone is justified, but it's through faith in Christ. That's not works, anything we can do. It's through faith in what Christ has done for us. And in verse 17, he moves on with his argument he really addresses a question there. He says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, does that mean Christ is a servant of sin? And he says, by no means. He says, we find ourselves sinners here. Even if we're trying to, to look to Christ to be justified, we still find sin in our lives. That's still a part of our reality, our existence. Does that mean Christ serves sin? And he says, no. But the same is true for those who are trying to live under the law. Whether you have the law and you're abiding by it or you're looking to Christ, the fact of the matter is we find ourselves before God as sinners with empty hands. There's nothing we can bring to him, and so returning the law doesn't help. In fact, the fact that we see that sin is still present in our lives, even as we look to Christ to be justified, shouldn't change the fact. It shouldn't cause us to move back to try to add something else to what Christ has done. But it also doesn't mean that Christ is a servant of sin. And so his argument is, no, he doesn't serve sin, but the fact that sin is there only proves the fact that we all stand before God at the same place. The law doesn't help. Justification will. And then in verse 18, he moves on, and he says, If I rebuild that which I destroyed, I show myself to be a lawbreaker, to be a trespasser. Well, what does he mean by that? And the, the point there I think he's saying is that returning to living under the law, the thing that was destroyed was the law, to rebuild it as a means to standing before God is not going to help us any. 
Because to rebuild the law is only going to demonstrate that I'm just as big of a sinner as I was before, if not more. So we don't return to this structure of deeds that will merit any kind of standing before God that will only increase our sin. It does nothing to really deal with it. And then we move to the passage that we're looking at this morning in verse 19 and 20, 21. It's really the crux of the argument that Paul has. It's his application to himself personally and for all believers of what this really means to live in this new age where Christ has come. And we have moved away from the law, its purpose to just reveal sin, to now the purpose to lead us into righteousness as Christ has led us there. So the two aspects of the reality that Christ has brought us to, the first is that we're dead to sin, or we're dead to the law so that we can live to God. That's the first. And the second one is there's an an intensive identification with the crucifixion of Christ. Verse 19, he says, I have through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. So he says, I've died to the law. And the question you need to ask is, what's it mean to have died to the law? What does that mean? And it's used in a variety of places. It means to change the way we relate to that thing. He says that we relate to the law no longer in the same way as we did before. That the Christian, for the Christian, for the one who is in Christ, who trusts in Christ, no longer stands in the same relationship to the law as it stands over him. That it rules him, but rather Christ is now in charge. No, we died to the law. The law is not dead. The law, the truth that God has given us about who he is and how to live is not dead. It's still alive, but we died to it as a means to gaining any kind of standing before God. And so now we come to it. Its purpose now has been shifted in Christ. The means of dealing with our sin is, is over. Now, if you think about this idea of dying to the law, that for the Jew, it was a different kind of thing than for us as we sit here today. Because we never lived under that era that, as Paul would have, in recognizing and seeing the law as his only source of hope. So for him, he recognized and he was zealous for the law. And so this was a huge deal for him to say, I have died to the law. I have died. I have ceased to relate to the law in the same way as I had before. It was huge for him to understand that it wasn't about adherence to that. It was about faith in Christ but the same can be true for us today. Anything that we put up in, in the front that, that, that obscures the gospel, anything that we do which stands between us and God, anything that requ- we require which pollutes the purity of the gospel does exactly the same thing. And we need to die to those things. Anything that we look to that will be necessary to live in addition to what Christ has done is doing the same thing as the law would have done. And so we need to die to those things. Because anything that undermines the sufficiency of Christ's work is undermining the gospel and the truth of what God has done for us. And so we die to those things. And Paul goes on to say that it's through the law that he died to the law. He died, he changed his relationship through it. What does it mean? It means that as Paul sought to obey the law, to live it out perfectly, that the only thing that happened was it revealed how big of a sinner he really was. It revealed his moral bankruptcy before God. So itself, its own function was to reveal that it couldn't save. That the law itself that God brought revealed that it couldn't save. And it brought him to the end of himself. And so Paul, the law now has been given a new kind of purpose. And Paul says, I've died to the law so that I might live to God. I no longer relate in this way. I find that there's nothing else 
that will be sufficient to deal with my own sin before God. There's nothing I can do that will undo my sin. There's nothing I can do of any value at all that, that will build my righteousness before God. And that's his argument here. Jesus says the same thing in a little bit different way. If you'll turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11, a couple verses here. He gives us a picture that's important to catch. Jesus says, 11, 28, and 29. He says, Come to me, all you, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Notice the order that Jesus gives us here. He says, Come to me first, and you will find rest. And then he says, Take my yoke upon you. And the yoke there is a picture of of our relationship to the law, of one's relationship to the law. The way that you would bear the law, that's the picture of the yoke. And Jesus says, you must first come to me before you can bear the law. Before you can carry it, you must come to me. And so the order is necessary. We come to him first, and then we're able. And then and only then are we able to carry the weight of the law because he carries it for us. And then and only then do we have any kind of rest or life that we find in the law as we recognize he has sufficiently and perfectly fulfilled it for us in our behalf. And so no longer is it necessary to live it out. We come to him, we find rest because he has completed it. He has fulfilled it for us, the weight he carries for us. And so the argument that Paul has for, those, for the Galatians is, why would you return to the old way of the oppressive weight of the law that could never be carried? All it would do is reveal your weakness and your sin. Why would you return there when what Christ has offered is true life, is true rest that's there. And so he says, through the law, I've died to the law so that I might live to God. But then he goes on in verse 20 and he tells us, he gives us this phrase. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. And this reminds us that he is indelibly marked by Christ's crucifixion. That Paul identified and understood himself to be one who had been crucified with Christ. And that phrase right there is huge for us. It's not just a simple statement of a past event. It's not just Christ was crucified. Yes, that was true, a true historical fact. The nature of the way that he phrases this for us, he says, I have been. And it's a past event that carries with it ongoing implications that are real for today. It's a past event that says, now this is real. Now this has an impact on my life. Now we should live in relation to that event that took place some for us for 2,000 years ago. So the verb has great implications for us to have been crucified with Christ, an event that carries present implications. A little over 20 years ago, my wife and I were married to each other. Uh, we walked the aisle. We made commitments to one another at that point in, in time. Our relationship with others changed. Our relationship with each other changed in such a way. That was, a one, that was an event that took place in history and time that has forever transformed the point of time that followed that. And so as I live today, as we live today, we live differently. We live in light of that event that took place. The implications still rest. And even more on a grand scale, and that's a picture of what Christ did in his death. And Paul so readily identifies with the crucifixion. He says, that event defines my life today. And he goes on to say so much so. It's so de defining of who I am. He says that it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. This is not a psychological statement about who's living. 
Paul, of course, in his personality was there. It's a theological one. It's a positional one. He says, it's not me that lives. It's him that lives in relation to me. And what he's saying there is the self that sought to find meaning and purpose in life and to find some sort of standing before God through the works of the law has been crucified. No longer is it I who live. It's he who lives in me. He lives in relation to me. My identity now is fixed by that. The operative power that works and dwells within me is the power of the resurrected Christ. I have been crucified with him who lives now as his life that lives and dwells within me in relation to me and my identity now is found in him. Now the question we ask that we can't fully answer exactly what it means, but he says that Christ lives in me. And what does that mean that Christ lives in us? We could go on and on, and it's difficult to really kind of put our hands around. There's a, a mystery here as we think about what does it mean that Christ lives in us? Well, one aspect of it, it's less geographical, although there's a sense of presence here. It's more that he lives in relation to us, that Christ lives his righteous life in the place of ours. As we live, as he lives in us, he lives in relation to us. He lives in the position of us. He takes our fallen position and he fills it with his righteousness. But it's not just that, it's that, but it's more. It's also the presence of God. It's the presence of Christ through his spirit that indwells within us. And so when he says that Christ lives in me, he lives in relation to me and he lives in and through me. Because one of the marks of this new age that Christ brings in is the presence of God, the residence of God within his people. And then Paul goes on to describe, if you will, the contours of this new reality to say, as he says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. And simply what he's saying there is the life that I'm continuing to live. This new reality in Christ, that he, what he has brought in, I live it out in the flesh. It's not like everything is new. It is on one level, but in another, it's the same. In the other, the way I live this out is in the flesh. And that's not the negative understanding. It's just the fact that I live it out of my mortal body. That there's an anticipation, even in the statement of flesh, that someday that will be gone. Someday there will be something else that will replace my mortal body, an immortal body. There's something else to be completed yet, but I live this out in this way. The life of the age to come, that which Christ has brought, is real and it's now, but we still live it, we still live it out in the flesh, in our mortal bodies. It's marked by brokenness and weakness, and it's prone to sin. And the way we do that is we live by faith. Now, what I've just done is kind of walked through and said, what are the contours? If you think of a map, what, what he has given us and said, this is true of the reality now in Christ. This is what's true, that you have died to the law and any other means of righteousness, and you live to God, and that you have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer you who live. It's now Christ's power that lives within us and in, in reference to us. That's the map and that's the reality. If you could put it, the contours of the map on the page, that's the 30,000 foot level view of what's now true. But we don't want to stay there as Christians and Paul doesn't want us to stay there at the theoretical level. Okay, Not purely at the doctrinal level, although that's essential for us to understand, but there's more to it. And what he says is, and the question we need to ask is, what does it look like to live now in this reality that Christ has created? What does it look like to live it out now in this world that he has created? What's new about it? What does it feel like to drop down into this reality and to live it out? 
to drop down from the 30,000 foot level and now to operate and to live in it. And he tells us those things. He gives us both the propositional as well as the experiential truth about living in this new era of Christ. And so now I want to ask you just a couple questions as it relates to that. You see, we have died to the rule of the law, and that's an ongoing process for us. We have been crucified and identified with his death. That's an ongoing process for us. His life is now the operative power within us, and we continue to live that out and flesh that out through our lives. But what does it look like now to live in this reality? How do we do that? There's three things that he gives us to understand this. What's it feel like? What do we do now? What's the practical outcome of this? And the first one he says for us that he gives us as a picture is that we live in attention of the real blessings of a new world that's already here as well as the real fallenness of a world that's fading away. There's a real tension that's presented in this, and he uses it in the term of flesh. He says, the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith. That there's a real tension in living in the already reality of what Christ has brought and the not yet fulfillment of it. We live in a world that's not complete. It's not the way that it's supposed to be. It's not finished. We live in bodies that are not complete, and it's a world that is fading away. But at the same time, we have tastes of the promises of the world that Christ has given to us. The reality of this new life is here and it's now, and it's as real as the crucifixion of Christ, but it's not complete. And as Paul uses this term to live in the flesh, he, we understand that. There's all kinds of connotations that we can connect with that, but the flesh, it's marked by all kinds of characteristics of, li- of fallen people living in a fallen world. We say that there's brokenness, there's a reality of suffering, there's sorrow in our lives. To live in the flesh means that we struggle with doubt. It means that we struggle with our own sin. We find in our own lives this propensity to not believe God, but to want to believe and to control our own lives, our own destinies, to not turn our lives over to God, but to rule them ourselves, to be autonomous. We find that there's weakness a part of us and it's associated with us. And that's what it means to live in the flesh. We feel the tension. We have taste of the reality of who God is. At the same time, we struggle. We want to submit to him, but there's many times that we don't want to. And so the tension is real within ourselves. That There's a struggle that's there between the old self and the new self. There's as well a struggle within relationships of others. It's fallen people, broken people, sinful people. Relationships don't go as we would want, and they create an immense amount of struggle for us. And a relationship with God of what that lives and what it really looks like. And we say, what does it really mean to be crucified with Christ? What does it mean that he lives within me? He doesn't feel like it. I wake up in the morning and you go, where are you? There's a real tension there as we await the completion of this. There's a real tension that exists in every way. Because we were made for another world and we have tastes of it and the blessing of it. But it's not completed. Paul gives us another kind of line on this in Romans chapter 8 when he describes uh, that we who have the first fruits of the, of the Spirit, who have tasted of this new reality in Christ, we groan inwardly as we wait the completion, as we wait for the redemption of our bodies, the completion of our adoption as sons. And so we groan. There's tension that's a part of our lives that's there. And Paul reminds us through the use of this term that we live this life and it's inseparably connected with the world to come. We have tastes of what's good and what's there at the same time, we experience the fallings of this, and we should not be surprised that this age is characterized 
by the already blessings and the not yet completion of what God has made us for. And in the tension, we feel the reality of this. And we shouldn't be surprised. We can't undo it. All we can do is trust. So already not yet reality of our lives, we feel it. The second thing, what's it feel like to live in this world? What's it, what do we need to do? How do we operate now in the world that Christ has created, what he has brought? Well, the second aspect is that the reality of this new life is experienced and confirmed as we personalize Christ's redemptive work. Note the language at the end of verse 20. And many have, have noted this and you recognize as Paul, this is a highly personal passage for him. As he says, it's not only, it's I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the life I now in the flesh, live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. That for Paul, this was personal. What Christ did was certainly a corporate act and it was for all those who were his, but even more so in a more particular kind of way, Paul had personalized the truth of what Christ has done and said, who loved me. What he has in mind there is the singular defining act of Christ's love of his crucifixion on the cross. And he gave himself for me on behalf of me. That Paul saw the love of Christ in this act. And for him, it was not just this theoretical mumbo-jumbo that it just would kind of flow. It was a part of who he was. His life had been transformed to the very core of his existence as a result of the love that he experienced and the degree to which he recognized that Christ had come and died for him. And for each one of us, the challenge and the necessity of personalizing that truth. Others have seen the same thing. Charles Wesley, in the whole context of his conversion as he contemplated this passage, wrote this in his journal. He wrote, I labored and I waited and, feel, uh, and prayed to feel the reality of this. The son of God who loved me and gave himself for me to experience. What does that mean? He didn't just die theoretically. He died particularly for me. And to apply that, to appropriate that, to personalize that. John Calvin writes in reference to this passage, each man must claim the effect and possession of this grace for himself personally. To take it and to receive and understand what it is. See, there's a danger for us of familiarity. There's a danger of us of keeping it at the 30,000-foot level at a distance. It's a danger for us to say, oh, I've heard that before. But what degree have we have allowed or seen that truth to truly change and transform our lives? And I think for us, this wonder and awe that we can, we can miss so easily. We just read over, and i got to be honest, in doing my paper, I remember two or three in the morning trying to finish this paper and working through that passage and just being struck by how little that meant to me, how little it meant that Christ died for me and gave himself for me and just going, I don't know what to do with this at three in the morning. i got to do something. i got to finish the paper. And for each one of us, to seek and ask God, help us to personalize this. Help us to truly apply this individually, to cultivate this, to contemplate it, to pray and ask for the truth of our status before him and this experience of his death for us on our behalf, that it would be a source of an ending wonder and joy for us. See, our goal is not to whip ourselves into some sort of emotional frenzy, but to experience an experiential knowledge of what this means to entrust ourselves to him to find out what he has truly done for us and to set in the wonder and awe of who he is. This will and this ought to accompany the Christian's experience. And you know, for each one of us, no matter where we are, it's a great place for us to start. See, where do I sit in relation to this? Is this still at the 30,000 foot level 
Have I personalized this? Have I recognized that he died for me and to ask him to allow that to soak into our own lives, our own souls, to transform us? Even as I say is the importance of experiencing that personally, it's important to note, though, that our, the firmness of his hold on us, the firmness of what he has done for us doesn't, is not connected to our experience of it. We're not any more firm in the hands of Christ if we experience it more by our own perception than if we didn't feel anything. But the experience of it is a confirmation of the reality. There's an objective reality that for his, we're his. And we're not going to be any more secure. But for the Christian to seek and to personalize it provides a kind of confirmation to go, yeah, oh yeah, this is what this is about. And it provides a kind of fuel for us to, to, to move forward on, to go, oh yeah, this is true and this is real. So there's an already not yet aspect of it. There's a personalized aspect of it we need to pursue. And then finally, there's this. Paul reminds us, how do we operate now in this reality, okay? What's it mean like to, to feed on the ground, move forward in the flesh? He says that faith is the operative mode or means by which we live. That faith apprehending that which is true over and against what our senses or experience tells us is the operative mode that we live now in this reality. That faith is the way that we enjoy and know the blessings of this life in Christ. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to do some climbing in Colorado. You know, I was all harnessed in and, and if you had a chance to do it, it's really a lot of fun. It's kind of a thrill. It's even better if you have a rope tied to you. Anyway, it was about a 40-foot you know, face of some sort, and I was climbing up it, and it was just a great time, but when we got to the top, they gave us a chance to rappel down, and that, that's a lot of fun, right? Okay, get to the top. That was fun. Now I get to go back down the easy way. Well, anyway, they said, well, what you need to do now is you need to lean back, okay? You need to lean back, and I said, excuse me? You know, you, you go, do you see that? All, there's this little bitty rope, and it seemed to be fine going up, but I don't know about going back down, so I leaned back a little ways, and Nothing happened. I just sat there and said, well, what's wrong? Nothing, it's not working. It's, well, that's because you haven't transferred your weight from yourself to the harness yet. And really only as you lean back and put yourself in a perpendicular position with the wall, it's not going to work. You're going to sit here all day long. You're not going to go anyway, anywhere. And I realized that what was necessary was complete trust in the harness, a complete transference from myself to the harness, to trust. It was only then that that mechanism would truly work. In a similar kind of way, that's what Paul says. The only way this works is through faith, is by trusting that Christ is sufficient, what he has told us about this new reality of our lives in him, and living in light of it. Putting ourselves in a perpendicular position to that wall, and trusting our weight completely to him, then we experience the reality that he has told us is true. Then and only then, otherwise we don't move. And faith is a necessary aspect for each and every one of us to experience the blessings of the, the reality that Christ has brought, of our position in him, of his faithfulness to us, the forgiveness of our sin, the fact that we are dead in him and that we are alive in him. As we do that, we experience the reality that he has promised if we look around and we go, this doesn't make any sense, we look around and we draw from our experience, our perception of reality, apart from what he has told us is true, we're not going to trust. We're going to trust in what we see and what we think. We trust in him and this experience we find as we, as we have faith and entrust and transfer our 
weight, if you will, of our lives to him completely. Faith is not something, by the way, that we drum up ourselves. Faith is a gift that he gives to us, but there's an aspect in which we, in, we exercise it. And as we exercise it, we see what's true. We experience the reality that he says is true of the world that he's promised. Doesn't always make a lot of sense, certainly when the exercise of it. But as we do, we taste the promises of the age to come. We taste the promises of who he is as we exercise that. By faith, we're able to hold our experience and the reality of what he sees together. So how do we live this out? We live it in attention. It's real. We live it by personalizing what he's done for us. And we live it completely by entrusting ourselves to him. And then as we do that, we realize, okay, this is the promise that he's given to us. And we wait for what he will do and what he will complete. It's not here and now, but it enables us to taste what he's promised for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that this is true. And even though our eyes sometimes fail to see exactly what is, is true that you have promised and said these things are true that we are saved by your grace, that our position with you is firm, and so we live as those identified with this crucifixion. Father, help us. Give us eyes to see. Give us faith. Help us to live in the tension of this reality. And even as I say that, I'm aware that each one of us, in some respect this week, has felt that to a greater or lesser degree. And I pray that you would give us strength to live in that, to walk through it, Father, I think of Dale Rubison this week and, and the diagnosis of cancer. And, and Father, I ask that you would be with him and that you would comfort him. That you would heal, and that's certainly our heart's desire, but more than that, you would be at work in his life and that you would continue to, to give him strength to walk through this and, and honor and glorify you. We pray for Jace LaRue and his continued recovery. Pray for, uh, we're grateful, Father, for uh, John and Angeline's little girl Nora and birth this last week and give them strength and be with them. We pray for Paul Peter's family and pray you be with them as well as they suffer the, the loss of his father. Uh, strengthen them. Father, help us to truly um, find our lives fixed and firmly um, placed there in, in the reality that you give us. Help us to walk with you faithfully this week. Help us to live out this gospel, this great news to those around us so they would see it and experience it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'd like to ask you to stand now for the benediction. Benediction is a reminder again of where this comes from, the power. Um, there's, there's a phrase even in the benediction that says, through our knowledge of him. And the knowledge that's referred to here is a kind of experiential knowledge of, of taking the truth and living it out. And we experience that as we, by faith. So receive this as God's benediction for us. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness according to our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Mm -hmm.